Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeks. Welcome back, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heeks, and welcome to 2021. Happy New Year to you all, and thank you so much for tuning in. We have another great episode for you here tonight. We have our friend Jesse Rausch out of Ohio. So Jesse is on a family property down there, and we dive in with him. It's pretty cool. We start from back when he was younger, and we evolve into where he's at now. And as he evolves, his property evolves. His habitat management evolves, and the strategy behind it also evolves. So we get into a great conversation. We talk about his hunting and habitat background. Talk about his website over at theohiooutdoors.com for all you Ohioans. We talk about his property details, and then we talk about expectations, how in the beginning, if you watch you know, enough TV realities and professionals, that what your skewed perception is versus reality on you know, smaller properties here in the Midwest. So it's pretty cool to hear how that can change and how he changed along with it. Now. This is a great episode. We have another great episode coming up soon with our forester that worked on my property. So stay tuned next week for that one. And then, you know, I was just on the Apple iTunes website checking out our rankings. And we have a bunch of new reviews this week. So I'm getting ready to mail out the decals. Our first one on January 1. Happy New Year. All right, Autumn. It says, awesome podcast. I love this podcast. I've implemented so many of these ideas into my routine, especially the Habitat Hook. There's so much to learn, and I can't get enough. Truly amazing show. Autumn, you're amazing. Thank you very much for the review. I will be getting a hold of you and sending you a decal. Next one, we have A. Panky. I probably screwed up your last name. I believe his name's Austin from what I've seen online. My new favorite. Do us all a favor and listen in. Love this podcast and listening to every episode. Very informative, and I'm grateful to have found it. Austin, thank you so much for the five-star review and the text on there. I'm going to send you guys both a brand-new decal. We have another one on there from Wisco Hunter. You're getting a decal, too. If you guys don't hear from me, go to our Habitat Chat group on Facebook. That group is already up to, I think, 550, 575 members, something like that, on our way to 600 
Uh, last week we passed five, so we're growing there, but that's a great place. I'm going to put a post up there for all you awesome listeners who leave us reviews. I'm going to put them up there so that way I can find you, get your address, because sometimes the usernames on iTunes don't give me your full name. They give me a, a username, if you will. So go to Habitat Chat on Facebook, and I will get you hooked up with a five-inch Habitat podcast decal. Thank you guys for those awesome reviews. Now, I want to talk about Packer Max Call to Packers. I put a new video up this week on YouTube of, call it Habitat Cribs, if you will. I go check out Lincoln Roan's new crib, his new uh, Packer Max facility over in uh, Rockford in northern Grand Rapids there, and I do a full six-minute tour of the place. It's a beautiful building. Packers are rolling out of there this month, so, you know, Check out our YouTube. Feel free to subscribe there. You know, we have different media that goes YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, podcast. So they're not all the same. So it's, it would benefit you to, to subscribe to each one. But anyways, Lincoln is on there. A beautiful facility. Thanks for having me over there, Link. And, guys, we have a special discount code for Packer Max Cult of Packers. If you go to his website at PackerMax.com, it is HPC25. There will be a link in the show notes below this episode right now in case you want to go there straight from this podcast. Now, next I want to talk about Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. We just wrapped up another season of their MWP, and we're coming out with a DVD and online viewing here soon. So check us out at Michigan Whitetail Pursuit on Facebook. There's also a group that they started last year, or maybe even the year before, called The Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. There's like 17,000 deer hunters on there. Uh, guys, just like you and me, working on Habitat, chasing bucks, just filling the freezer, all kinds of good stuff over at their group site at The Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Or obviously, you can find all the old seasons and DVDs at michiganwhitetailpursuit.com. YouTube's another great place. Check them out and subscribe, guys. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank uh, Habitat Hook. Nick is making them over there, so check out Habitat Hook. Killer Food Plots. Morris Nursery, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction. Chad just came out with a 16-acre listing in Midland County this week. It's probably already got it under contract, but check it out at his website. And we have HuntWise. And, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. If you are interested and want to support the podcast, like I mentioned, the reviews are a great way to do so. Sharing our stuff online to your friends who may not have heard about us. Also a great way to do so. Otherwise, check us out at HabitatPodcast.com. We're putting up a bunch of new blog posts in our Habitat journal this year. We're also up there with shirts and hats, decals. Going to come out here probably with some hoodies and some coffee mugs based on the feedback we're getting from the listeners. So check us out there at HabitatPodcast.com. And if you're interested in any help with your property, maybe you don't know where to start with your Habitat work. Maybe you're new and you don't want to you know, screw up and and wish you did something different, give us a call on the land plan services. We'd love to help you out. Talk to a few people today on them. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to save you guys some time so you don't spend five, six years, you know, undoing or redoing or wishing you had done something different. So we're here to help. Let us know at HabitatPodcast.com. And as always, thank you listeners so much for tuning in. Guys are awesome. Here we go with Jesse Roush out of Ohio. We have Brian Hallbly on the line tonight. What's going on, Brian? Doing well, Jared. Just uh, doing some relaxing, catching up with the family on some holiday vacation after Christmas, and uh, even managed to squeeze a few hunts in. 
Yeah, I, I saw that today. How late does your hunting season go in Pennsylvania? I think archery's open until like the third Saturday in January this year. Awesome. awesome. And then uh got muzzleloader coming up in Ohio next weekend. So got a few days left. Going to try to keep grinding it out and see what happens. Yes, sir. Way to hang in there. And then we have uh, a very special guest tonight, Mr. Jesse Roush. How you doing, Jesse? I'm good, sir. Appreciate you guys having me on tonight. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for coming on. I know um, I've been on your website pretty much all day without, uh, you know, without my boss here and that trying <laughs> to trying to get everything get, get get to know my way around your website and right. uh, and Al has had nothing but great things to say about you. So I'm happy to have you on, sir. Appreciate it. Yeah, Al's a good friend, and uh, I appreciate the referral to this. He's He's been a producer of good content for us, and he's doing the same thing for you guys now. So he's a great guy to have around. Yes, sir, and I think you're pretty close to – maybe not pretty close, but kind of close to where, where Brian hunts in Ohio. Um, I didn't fill Brian in on, on where you're from. So where where is your property down there, and, Brian, where are you at? Yeah, so I'm in Washington County, southeast corner of the state. Yeah, my current lease is in Carroll County, and I just picked okay. up a uh, lease in Muskingum County. Uh, middle of October it came up, so I'll probably be exclusively hunting the Muskingum, yeah. Muskingum lease this fall. Uh, probably not going to be going back on the Carroll County lease, but uh, definitely be over there somewhere for sure. It's good and territory for sure. How far is that from, from you, Jesse? Uh, I can be into Muskingum County in, in about an hour. Okay, yeah, not bad. Well, very nice. I uh, appreciate both of you guys coming on tonight. Let's kick this off like we always do. Let's hear about who our guest is. Jesse, if you want to paint us a picture on who you are, where you're from, all that good stuff, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so uh, Jesse Roush, born and raised here in Washington County, uh, 38 years old. My day job, I am the executive director of our local economic development organization, and then about 10 years ago, I launched uh, the website The Ohio Outdoors with a friend of mine, uh, Joe Wilson. Uh, kind of a, a small niche in, in terms of hunting forums aren't as you know kind of popular as they used to be. But um, you know, when it comes to the state of Ohio and, and hunting forums and being able to get online and find answers to questions, whether it be you know accessing public land or planting food plots or you know, we got guys from all walks of life that are into antique guns and, and anything you can name, you can get an answer for there. So, you know, when we launched that platform 10 years ago, we just wanted to provide an avenue for folks to get on there and ask questions, whether they were directly hunting related or life related or hobby related. And it's been a, a fairly successful venture. We hit 10 years in August and uh, I think we exceeded our goals and it's it's been kind of everything we hoped it would be. Yeah, uh, I used to be a, a huge forum guy before I started this podcast and got got busy doing that type of thing. How many uh, members do you guys have in your forum? And uh, and I guess how long, you said it's been about 10 years, so how long have you been a forum guy? Because you obviously were before that. Yeah, so I actually joined the forums. I'm, I'm largely self-taught. I, I grew up in a hunting family, uh, was around it, but it wasn't really something that, you know, my, my dad was overly involved in. And so when I really started getting serious about it, uh, I went to looking for other avenues and I joined uh, my first hunting forum in 2004. 
So been around for quite a while. In fact, a lot of the guys that are pretty active on our forum right now were guys that I met early on in you know, that 2004, 5, 6 time frame. Um, you know, we're up to about 6,500 members. I'd say on any given day we have – a hundred guys that are, are fairly active and we really probably have more people that are reading and, and affectionately called lurkers than we have people that post on a daily basis. But, you know, you'll constantly, somebody will come out of the woodwork once a week and say, you know, long time reader, first time poster. And it's always great when somebody finally decides to throw their hat in the ring and, and pose a question or share a success or a story. Yes, sir. And for, for anybody who didn't hear, that is the Ohio Outdoors. And I know uh, I was on Ohio Sportsman when I first started hunting Ohio about six, seven years ago. And there was a guy on there. I think his name was Sergeant Fury. And I see he's, oh, yes. very, he's very active on, on your forum. I've never yeah. met the guy. I just, uh, he hunted or he owns property in Vinton County. And that was where I got my first property to hunt. Okay, yeah. And, and uh, he gave me some tips on which real crappy hotel to stay in and <laughs> and all this good stuff. And we took him up on it, and um, yeah. it was just cool to talk to somebody that was very familiar with, I guess, the very local area right. um, in Ohio that we were going to. So, and, yeah. yeah, and he drove up from New Jersey or somewhere. And, right. And we were driving from Michigan, so it was kind of cool to hear how he did it, and we learned from him and, and blah, blah, blah. But I'm on your website right now, and it looks like he's a pretty active member on there too. Yeah, I just had a chance to meet him um, a couple weeks ago for the first time. Obviously, I've known him on, you know, known him kind of air quotes, right? We've been on the internet as as acquaintances for 16 years, and I just got a chance to meet him and shake his hand, which I think is the big part that change, our forum makes it different than others. Is that group of 100 guys? The vast majority of us have met one another. Uh, we have an annual gathering down at Stroud's Run State Park in October every year. And this year we had uh, close to 40 people in camp. So when you've had a chance to share a campfire with guys, uh, it changes the, the forum interactions. And so meeting Sergeant Ferry after all these years and being able to put a face to the name, and that just that makes the whole experience better. Yeah, so tell me about this get-together. Is it like a hunting get-together? I mean, it's October. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we, we try to do it a couple times a year. Um, we do a spring gathering at Paint Creek in, in May every year where we hunt fish. Uh, you know, we're able to hunt turkeys, we're able to fish, we're able to look for mushrooms. Uh, we get together in the summertime to do a, a bow shoot and a trap shoot, and then October is kind of the big deal. We've been doing that for 10 years. Um, some guys just hang around the campfire all weekend. Some guys hunt really hard. Uh, we had a pretty good camp this year in terms of bringing deer back. One of our members has a lease nearby, and he killed a a slob eight point on his farm and was able to bring it into camp. So we got the real deal, big buck fuel to camp this year. It was great. That's badass, man. I know, um, I know, I would say the coolest part about this podcast that, that we do is the people that we've got to meet and, and get in contact with and just network with. It's got to be the number one thing that's, that's came out of all this. So I, I feel you on that and I'm sure you guys uh, can relate. Yeah, I mean, we affectionately call it a brotherhood, and it's really become that. I don't actually have a biological brother, so a lot of these guys have become, you know, my de facto brothers over the years. I've got to know their families. We're trading Christmas cards around. 
Um, got to see some of the kids, you know, uh, we've been, I've been friends with some of these guys long enough. I've seen their kids go from toddlers to college graduates. And, and that, again, sort of adds to the whole feel of the, of the forum experience. So you mentioned about growing up in a hunting household. Could you walk us through what that looked like growing up there and how you started out? Yeah. So my grandparents owned roughly 300 acres when I was a young lad. And we I grew up sort of running those hills, learned to squirrel hunt around five or six on that farm. When I was eight years old, I went on my first deer hunt. And uh, my dad has four brothers. Two of my uncles are, are the hunters in the family. They really sort of carried that torch. And, and my dad did it because it was kind of a thing to do. And for me, it was kind of the same way up until um, I was 18. And then when I, for Christmas, the year I was 18, I asked for a bow. And my mom and dad bought me a bear whitetail, too. And my dad will tell you that he thought it was just going to be a, a passing fancy. And uh, I went out back that very same day and fired my first arrows out of a compound bow and somewhat sort of ashamed to admit that I actually went hunting that afternoon. And um, <laughs> thankfully missed a doe. I had a big doe come in broadside. Um, I live in a house I grew up in, so on the same property I'm sitting right now is where my first bow hunt took place. And uh, big, beautiful doe came in, gave me a beautiful shot, and I, I whiffed. And, and it just I knew at that moment in time – this was way different than any gun hunt I'd ever been on, and being a bow hunter was probably what was going to define me. And as it turned out, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what's defined me the last 20 years. That's awesome. I think um, getting out there your first time with that bow in your hand and getting after it, I, I know what you mean by, you know, it might be a little embarrassed to admit because maybe you weren't quite ready or, or whatever, but, hey, I mean, if that didn't happen – you know, that excitement right off the bat, I mean, that's exactly how I started, duck hunting and, and just got into it and, and the bug bit, so. Yep. I yeah, know I, I mean, it, that. It, it, totally, it totally took me over. Um, I managed to, to kill my first year the, the, the very next year with a bow uh, from the ground, and it just took off from there. That was, that was 2002. By 2004, I was running trail cameras. In 2005, we bought our farm. And, um, you know, it, it just kind of hit a fever pace at that point and became a, an all-consuming obsession that, you know, follows me to today. So let's, let's hear about how you moved from hunting to habitat. Um, we talked a little earlier, and, and Al has filled me in. You're quite the habitat guy like the rest of us, which is awesome, by the way. Um, when did you start doing that? Was it on that same property you're on now? And and let's hear about that, and then I want to get into your to your main property uh, after that. Yeah, yeah. So it did, it did kind of start on um, this 11 acres here at the house. I did my first sort of four man's food plot to borrow from from Mr. Winky um, in 2003. Just picked an open spot in the woods down by the creek, scratched out all the leaves, threw down some throw and grow. Um, seeing leaves and, and dirt turn into lush green growth. That that was probably as exciting as the first bow hunt, and uh, you know, again, a couple of years later, we buy the farm, and that gave me access to to 80 acres where I could really, you know, develop a plan and, and do some some bigger picture things, particularly just expanding the size of my food plots, the numbers of them. But you know, over the years, that's taken shape into to hinge cutting and planning, and, and the, you know, the whole nine. Okay, so. 
How long ago did you guys pick up the, I believe it's 80 acres, right? Yep. So, yeah, my parents bought that in October 2005, and at that time, it was a really well-maintained and manicured farm uh, owned by a gentleman that loved his brush hog. And so <laughs> he was hard on the habitat, and uh, my my dad kind of the same way, got a farm, got a tractor, he's got something to, to play with, and he was kind of hard on the habitat. Uh, we ran cattle for a little while, and then we phased the, the cows out um, around 2010, and that's really when I was able to kind of encourage my dad to stay off the, the brush hog in some of the areas that had always been pretty well maintained. And that was that was really kind of the first step. Doing nothing was really the first step in doing something big. On our farm. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally transformed a couple areas. Um, you know, the, you can't really hunt. They're kind of by what I would call the front door. And for the visual people listening, this 80 acres is a big L shape. And we have uh, a main, what we call the pond holler, running north and south down one leg and then another east-west creek that kind of splits the property in half. And a lot of the stuff south of the main creek is a little difficult to hunt, but over the years that went from pristine sort of manicured hay, hay and, and just mowed area to we've actually got a local farmer who's putting in about five acres of ag on the property now uh, has been for six or seven years. And a lot of that really well-maintained sideland pastured ground has grown up into textbook. You could call it CRP. I mean, everybody knows you hear that acronym, you know, you can see that in your mind and it's just turned into phenomenal habitat over the years. So before we get a little further into into your property, let's break it down a little bit more. So it's an L shape. How does the L sit? The the bottom of the L would be on the north or the south, or how does it sit? Yeah, so I mean, you could look at it too, like the number seven, right? So the bottom. Okay. Yeah. So the the top part is is the east west. We have what we call the north ridge, which is north of that creek that's running east or west. That's a lot of what I would call bigger timber, and it's bordered by a former dairy farm that has a lot of ag on that side. So everything to the north is big timber and then big ag. Sort of the eastern side of the property is where our ag and the cover is, and then our neighbors immediately to the east have about 15 acres of absolute thicket. It's great stuff when they stay out of it, and that's that's changed over the years. Most recently, they've stayed out of it a lot, so that's helped. And then laying inside the L there to the to the west of what we called the Pond Hollow, at the time we bought the farm, that was 55 acres of some of the most beautiful open hardwoods I've ever personally seen. You could see with the snow on the ground, you could sit in the middle of that 55 acres and basically cover the whole place. Wow. In, two, in 2012, they select cut that. And today it is just an absolute nasty briar patch that holds a lot of deer um, it got sold during all the um, oil boom down here it got sold to a company from Oklahoma City they're pretty good neighbors they're not there they don't care if you're on it and we treat it basically as a sanctuary okay okay and um, real quick before we dive further into habitat why'd you guys get rid of the, the cattle uh, that was more of my sister's endeavor, and okay. she graduated uh, high school and stopped doing the show cattle circuit and went to college. It just became a lot for everybody to take on. Yeah, um, you know, it's just it's a lot to take care of, and so eventually they sold the herd, and 
it's not to say we won't get back into it one of these days, but we were more in the show cattle business than we were in the beef cattle business. And uh, my dad was ready to hang it up. Got it. No, that that makes sense. Yeah, I know cattle can be lucrative, but it's a lot of work, and uh, the show cattle is a little bit different too. So, okay, appreciate you going into that for me. Mm-hmm. So, where did you start on this eighty? And and you said 05, so it's been about 15 years. I want to hear about, like, what it looked like when you got rid of the cattle and started hitting it hard on the habitat stuff, and then kind of how it transformed or evolved, or I guess just give us a little bit of a, a rundown on where you started with the habitat and, and maybe a middle section of where you were, maybe five, six, seven years ago, and uh, kind of paint the picture of the timeline, if you will, of your property. Yeah, so when we took over, it was pretty pristine. It was a really well-manicured farm, good road system. Again, lots of brush hogging. Um, there was really no substantial cover on the farm. There's one spot kind of out on the western side of the L that we turned into a sanctuary right out of the gate. It was the very first thing I did when I walked the farm was this This is the place. This is the best cover we have on the whole place. It's about three acres of kind of tiered hillside. There's a flat up on the ridge. It benches once and then hits the creek bottom. But it's it's got a lot of, you know, unfortunately it's got a lot of autumn olive in it, but it's got a lot of green briar and honeysuckle. And it's not the most desirable uh, browse habitat, but it's got good cover and it was a good place for them to hide. And, and, you know, the first few hunts I noticed a lot of deer coming and going from there. So we, we tried to preserve that right out of the gate. Um, the next thing was, you know, at that time, being self-taught, I was really taking in a lot of knowledge from the juries. And so having green food plots was something that I'd always really wanted to do. I'd had my first experiment here at the house. And uh, the first couple of years, we carved out um, two food plots that still exist. One one I affectionately call the corner pocket, which has really become the best one of the best spots on the farm. It's If I have a spot that I can look to and say, we created this spot, that's the corner pocket, and that food plot's a big part of it. It's on an inside corner. Um, kind of borders some good topography and some good hardwoods and another sanctuary. And then we have another one we call the runway plot, which is a long, narrow plot down in the creek bottom in a transition area. So I established both of those. And then about three or four years in, we put in what we call the big plot. We have a creek bottom section that's roughly 300 yards long, 75 yards wide, and uh, it was always just mowed and maintained. Well, we eventually were, you know, my dad upgraded tractors and was able to get a box tiller. And that that was a game changer at that three or four year mark was having a 55 horsepower tractor with a five foot box tiller changes your food plot game. So I was able to sort of, you know, feather, feather the edges of those food plots, grow them a little bit, but really actually get in and do the soil prep properly. I'd really been doing the poor man's approach in those first few years. You know, when we start hitting that middle section at seven, eight years in, around that, you know, 2012, 13, 14 time frame, that's when I, I, I really got my dad to stay off the brush hog. We designated some more sanctuary areas and let those begin to go foul. And they, you know, now are sort of hitting their stride. In fact, one of the areas, which is sort of on the southern end of the property, I probably need to go in with a chainsaw this year and start cutting down some of the trees that have come back. we got some, some locust trees that are coming in there. The sumacs are getting pretty tall. So it, it would it would benefit me now to, to turn the chainsaw loose. 
And then I would say, you know, four or five years ago is when we started some of the first of the, the hinge cutting as an experiment um, on that north ridge I talked about. I got a couple of real sharp drainages that cut up the hill and create a really nice funnel area. And I got a south-facing point in there, and that's where we did the first of our hinge cuts that um, have now kind of grown up very nicely. And, and as of this year, I can say I'm seeing results from a, from a bedding habitat standpoint. It's, it's made a difference up there on that ridge for sure. Yeah, that I mean, that's a picture-perfect southern Ohio bedding ridge to me, that southern point. And um, you guys hit the nail on the head there by, by working that point over first. So uh, that's same with our lease. So the south-facing tips and points, those are where the deer bed on, on the lease that I, I have on in southern Ohio as well. Um, I know that, you know, that, that bush honeysuckle area you were saying, it reminds me of a land plan we did, Brian, with with Ty down in Kentucky. He had a big a big south-facing slope, kind of southeast-facing slope there with a bunch of a BH as well. And um, have you removed any of that and found anything else coming in that's, that's a better choice than the the browse the, or the bush honeysuckle i know it's great cover and and um real nice and thick but have you tried anything like that on any of that bh no i haven't i'd say one of the weaknesses in my management program is i haven't been real aggressive in managing any of the non-desirables or the invasive i've sort of just appreciated the thickness for what it was um i've grown to to appreciate the fact that i, I really probably need to get in there and do something but at the same time, when you lack all that cover, um, I just kind of let it be. Now we're to the point where I have enough cover, I can get serious about managing some of that and seeing what what regrowth we get. Yeah, no, I take, I feel you there. I have uh, Autumn Olive still alive on my property for that exact reason. So I I hear you. I'm going to eradicate some of that this year, but um, cover is, is cover, and you don't want to at least I don't want to get rid of all of mine at once. I'd rather just take it out point by point and maybe in a succession or in a in a couple steps and, and do it that way. So I got you there. Yep. So how was the deer hunting from the beginning and turkey hunting and, and wildlife from the beginning and then into the middle? Tell us about that. So we've we've seen it's been man, it's been a an evolution. Early on, that's when deer numbers were crazy in Ohio before we really started the cut and um, it was nothing for me to see a dozen deer the the genetics I really got my expectations kind of skewed out of the gate because within the first two years I was hunting multiple 150 160 plus deer and then in 2007 and 2008 I hunted a deer that ended up getting hit on the road um, 2008 Halloween 2008 that deer was 183 with 18 scoreable points and he was my first real buck that I had history with, watched him grow, you know, two to three to four. Um, he was he was working food flights. You know, you start to get this feeling like, you know, this is going to work. We, we got these plans. We're going to make this happen. Um, and then we, we probably got a little aggressive shooting does from 2005 to 2010. And in 2010, the numbers were kind of down. And the, the quality of the big bucks were down. So we stopped shooting does in 2010 and have just now opened that back up in the last couple of years. Um, my wife hunts too, so my wife is sort of my, my my doe killer. When it comes time to taking a couple out, she usually does that during during gun season. But, you know, the overall caliber of the bucks 
has decreased in recent years. We had a little hit with EHD a few years back that, that didn't help anything. But the one thing we've always struggled with is we can hold two, three, and four-year-old bucks. And we'll see the older age class deer during the rut. We just don't hold five-year-old deer or older. There's a, another farm south of us across the road that I've never walked personally, but the locals there have always told me that that's really some of the best habitat in, in the general neighborhood. And so I think we lose a lot of the caliber genetics over there. But uh, one of the conversations I had this year is the, the genetics in general have, have kind of went downhill. There's a lot more pressure. There's a lot more people hunting in the neighborhood, and I wonder how much that's factored into it. I wonder what we're not seeing on the cameras or seeing while we're hunting. But we have some decisions to make in terms of how we can influence the genetics and getting some getting some of those bucks back that were were fun to hunt in the early years that that really get you keep you up at night. Now, when you mentioned the genetics going downhill, do you think it's a uh, issue of guys shooting too many young deer in the area, or or what do you think is causing that? A, a little bit. I mean, we've been fortunate to have really good neighbors. Um, the dairy farm I mentioned earlier was leased for a while from uh, some guys from North Carolina who. They killed some of, you know, it seems like we were only getting one older age class, you know, 140 plus type buck to hunt between all of us. And they were, they really have some of the better hunting on them. And they, they drape around our property. They, they, that property covers us on three sides. And so they were pretty successful over there. Um, I think the EHD didn't help anything. And I think that just the increase in all of the smaller parcels in that general neighborhood. Um, there's about 500 acres that's encompassed by roads, kind of gives us our block. A lot of those smaller peripheral properties were unhunted when we bought the farm. Now there's a hunter on every every piece of it. And so I don't really know what's going on over there, but I suspect that we're, we're, we're seeing some of that decrease in overall genetic quality because of the increased pressure on the peripheral of our place and the bigger farm. Okay, so you're you're saying that they're probably just leaving and avoiding that pressure. It's not so much of a, a problem with the genetics themselves. Yeah, um, but I would say, too, just total count of, of good quality shooters is down. We went from, you know, in those early years, 2005 to 2010, to having three or four four-year-old shooters on camera that we could consider to now it's about one. Yeah. Yeah, pressure will do that for sure. I've, I've noticed that over the years at different places where, like you said, you'll you'll get a bunch more on picture. You'll see a lot more in your sits. And then, uh, you know, a lot of similarities of what you're talking about. Smaller places start getting hunted more. More guys start showing up. So, yeah, pressure is huge, man. It, it can have a big effect on a lot more than we think. Yeah, and I think – and, and some of it, too, is, you know, we I was really picky. I, I'll be honest, I hunted 14 years before I killed a buck on that farm. Let a lot of deer walk that I, I maybe should have shot. I killed big deer here behind the house. Interestingly enough, this 11 acre here is where I've killed the majority of my big deer. It's just the right place. I mean, it doesn't have to be a lot of acres. It's got to be the right acreage, and that's what I'm sitting on. But right. that 80 hunts kind of small because of, of, of the lack of cover for a long time. It makes access a little difficult. Um, but we're starting to see now a real consistent, you know, in those early years, we would have those big bucks and their yearlings and not a lot in the middle. Now, all of a sudden, we got this this middle ground of two- and three-year-olds that are pretty, you know, respectable deer, but they're not becoming much at four-year-old, four or older. They're, the buck I killed this year is a good example of that. 
I mean, that's it's a four-year-old buck that really wasn't going to be much. And so, you know, I I don't necessarily believe in in call bucks as a, a practical thing to do on these small, heavily pressured properties. But there's a part of me that looks at that deer and I'm kind of like, well, I'm I'm glad he's not in the herd because maybe the next deer that replaces him is the one that's got that genetic superstar we've been missing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you mentioned about uh, watching the juries and and taking some tips from them and and pre-internet and 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 forums like you have and and podcasts like we're doing here. A lot of us, you know, watched a lot of hunting shows and videos and DVDs, and that's where we got our information from. And sometimes expectations can be a little bit skewed. You want to walk us through sort of what your expectations were when you started, thinking that you were going to take after the juries, and then kind of what happened when the real world uh, reality hit you. Yeah, um, that, was the, that was the steepest learning curve I underwent. I, I had this. <laughs> I had this expectation that all I needed to do was to to facilitate that green to green transition. I needed to shoot does. I needed to let young bucks walk. I needed to work hard and be out there all year long, monitoring cameras, putting in sweat equity, and that would translate to dead big bucks. And it's not that simple of an equation. And so I spent a fair amount of time early on turning dirt and planting food plots because I thought that was sort of the first recipe to success when I really probably should have been running a chainsaw instead. Um, So I I sort of had this, this unrealistic expectation that if you know, you you plant the green food plots, the deer are going to flock to them. And I continue to plant food plots, but the deer don't necessarily flock to them. They use them. They've become some, you know, good places to hunt and get pictures, but they're, they're not transformative in what they've done to that farm. What's been transformative is that cover, and I don't remember them preaching that cover early in the in the in my learning process as much. What stuck out to me was really you know shooting a lot of does and planting that food. Um, and for the first few years, I, I had this expectation that at any minute now I'm going to work myself into a big buck, and I kept you know putting in the time. I, I was probably hunting way too much. Uh, there were a couple years there where I was putting in 200 plus hours on stand on 80 acres and burning the farm out and not paying attention to my access and being, you know, sort of detail oriented like I am now. And so, you know, there was a there was a few years there where I, I took it pretty hard. I felt like I was doing something wrong, or you know, maybe that I just wasn't a good hunter. But I think I just didn't have my head in the right place. Yeah, you mentioned uh, transformative. I like that adjective. Because we we make a lot of changes to our properties, and uh, sometimes we think we're doing everything as a whole instead of breaking it down into what each thing is having, what type of effect. And I, I like the way that you put that. Thank you. Yeah, it um, it took me a long time to to figure out that the the food plots. I'm in an area with with so much ag and so much browse that there those aren't. That, that concept of having that destination feed field, for me, I'm not really in that type of area. What I need is just a place to mingle. I need that staging area before they move on to the bigger ag fields around us uh, or something just to catch their attention or make, you know, for the bucks when it comes time to cruise, for them to go check and see where those does have been hanging out. And so once I started to figure that out and kind of, you know, restructure my expectations and then refocus, too, to some other areas on the farm – uh, I was able to kind of, you know, you know, take my head out of my, you know, what, and, and <laughs> look at it with a little positive attitude. 
Yeah, Jesse, you mentioned something uh, earlier <clears throat> when we were talking about this expectation thing, and and you mentioned how uh, you know you, you could have had five years of of undergrowth coming up with that chainsaw versus you know five years of food plots and, and pressure and and cover doing doing nothing, right? And yep. I just want to mention that because I did the exact same thing. I mean. First thing I did when I bought my property was call the guy with a brush hog on the skid steer and bring him in for food plots. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally. And and I think a lot of our listeners could probably relate to that. And I think that's it's important to cover. You know, I I have a little bit of food. I have a little bit of cover. And um, the cover is what I've been focusing on for after year one or year two. I've been strictly focusing on cover. I haven't expanded any food plots or anything. But... Um, what's interesting about my place is I think I have a pretty high deer number. My forester, Hunter, uh, you know, we, we're just looking at a browse survey and what's going on in my property. He's like, yeah, shoot more deer. So I have, I have that issue where the food's still getting mowed and the covers, you know, it's getting better. I just had my place logged and, and this and that, but it's just, Everything is always evolving. So to your right. to your point about transformative and, and just how the, your plan for your property is always changing, I mean that's that's kind of why we try to do these land plans for our for our uh, our listeners or, or whomever. I I want to be able to save somebody that five years, right? I want to be able to tell them right now just how to start out versus getting five years down the road and learning the hard way. Even though that's how you learn sometimes. I don't know, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I could not plant food plots ever again and not hurt my hunting experience. Right. I do it. I do it because I love it. And there, obviously, there's some benefit for the deer, but it, it's a passion for me. I really enjoy the food plot part of it. I'm going to continue to do it because of that. But if I never planted another food plot on our farm again, I don't, I don't think I would notice it at all when it comes to my hunting. Where I'm going to notice it is the change, the cover, and the changes that we're making there. Yeah, that's that's one thing we want to try to get involved right away, right off the bat when we get access to a property or if we purchase a property. I think we all do that. And, and food plots sort of make it simple. It's it's the sexy thing. You know, you see it on TV, you buy the bag of seed and throw it out there. And I think that's huge. What you and Jared, the points you guys just made, just to step back and, you know, if you haven't done it before, try to take everything in before you jump in. I, I know that was one of my problems. I just went right to work and I, I, I stopped and looked back over a couple of years and thought the same thing you guys did exactly like you, like you mentioned. So listeners, if you take anything, even just one thing from this podcast, that's a huge one, you know, hit the rewind button, play that again and uh, keep thinking on that because you'll save yourself a lot of time and a lot of aggravation. Yeah, agreed. Brian, you sound like uh, our president when you say huge, huge. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So (laughs) moving on, Jesse, um, what are you doing for your, for your cover, expanding your cover right now? I get, I got to hear because it's, you know, it's chainsaw season, you know, is the chain sharp and, and what have you been doing? Is it working? What's not working? Let's hear about the cover. Yeah, so, yeah, chains are sharp. Uh, just upgraded to a steel 291, so I'm ready. Um, actually, we're getting ready to do a walkthrough with my dad. Um, obviously, he still owns the property, so he's got to sign off on anything crazy. But uh, 
on that north ridge at the head of one of those drainages, there's some good thick stuff right right adjacent to the property line. And uh, a lot of what's on us right there in that particular northeast corner of the property is open hardwoods, a lot of maple growth in there. Um, I want to clear cut effectively an acre of all of that and let it regrow. Um, we've talked about, I'm for sure ordering a bunch of cedar trees. Some of that's going to go down in the bottom, um, in the Big Creek bottom. But I may end up planting a somewhat of a line right along the, that's a big ridgetop ag field that borders us right there. So it transitions out of our hardwoods into a ridgetop ag field. That's all south facing. It's pretty good bedding, but it really needs to thicken up in there. So if we can go in and drop all those trees out of there, let that regrowth, get some of the browse in there, and plant some of those cedar trees right there to provide a, a wind break and a visual break from the field, that that's on the list of things to do. And then down in the, the big field in the creek, um, we're going to take about the, the western third of that. We've let it kind of regrow. Um, it's beginning to look like CRP, but um, we're going to add some switchgrass and cedars down in that bottom and start to take advantage of – that's it, it, it's right immediately adjacent to my, my sanctuary that's, that's kind of that tiered area that I was talking about earlier. And then we're going to go in that tiered area and uh, drop a lot of the big – trees that are in there. Uh, we have a small bandsaw sawmill on the farm, so my dad's game for taking anything out that's got lumber in it, and in that particular three acres, we can take out a couple dozen bigger trees. Uh, none of them are, you know, there's no oaks in there. It's all hickories and black walnut and, you know, sort of less desirable hardwoods. We're going to take those out of there and saw them up for lumber and then allow that sunlight to penetrate into that area and hopefully thicken it up a little bit. Wow. So what do you do once you saw it up for lumber? Uh, we've talked about building a cabin out there. Um, nice. dad's, dad's talking about retiring, so he's got a little wood shop, and he, he's he been turning some of it into stuff. I actually, I just built some, a, a coat rack here for the garage that I took, a, you know, just a rough sawing piece of lumber that we cut off the farm and made good use of it. That's real cool. I like, uh, I love that side of stuff too. You know, it's, if I could, I always look up, um, you know, like old hunting camp videos on on YouTube. There's a there's a bunch in the UP of Michigan, and you'd be surprised what kind of cabins you see up up there. And just reminds me of of something that that I see up there. You guys put together. That sounds great. Now yeah, it'd be, be nice to get the cabin out there. That'd be kind of a family heirloom beyond just the real estate. Yeah. No, I hear you there. So. Is there any timber, I mean, walnuts were something, but do you guys ever have anybody come in and cut for you? I mean, it's 80 acres. It's, it's a lot of a lot of property there. Is, has anybody, like a forester ever came in and given you an opinion on anything once you told them your goals? or Not yet. That's the plan this spring. So okay. um, it was cut about, we're probably at the 25-year mark since the last time somebody's been in there and taken any marketable timber off of it. Um, there are a couple of other sections of the farm where, particularly the black walnut, uh, we got some pretty valuable timber in a couple other areas of the farm that, that they'll help, but they're more in transition areas. So whatever, you know, kind of regrowth and browse we get in there is better than just, you know, having a, a giant black, a black walnut growing in the creek. You know, we take yeah. that out and let that grow up and brush. It'd be good too. So um, we, I just had this conversation with my dad this morning, actually, 
thanks to talking to Al about engaging a local forester and getting somebody in there to give us an opinion. And uh, we're going to take them on our, on the walk with us this spring to, to, to lay out our goals and look at a 10 or 15-year plan and, and really see what sort of recommendations we can get. Yeah, I like how you said lay out your goals to the forester. I know um, my forester is great. He understood my goals. So, I, like, I just urge anybody who does work with one to let them know what your goals are so you don't get kind of pushed into a, a category or a or, or whatever that they don't want to. But um, back to those cedars. Where are you getting those cedars from? How big are they going to be and how many are you buying? Well, I've been – is it Morse Nursery that's yours? sponsor yes sir yeah so i've been eyeballing their website um i'd like to have 50 and i'd like to get sort of those three foot range ones if i can get them yeah yeah i know um my buddy brian the 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 farm i call the project farm kind of close to my home where i help him out with this habitat where i hunt he's going to put in 100 cedars this year as well um and we're also putting in about 10 acres of switch but uh that the cedars you know we're just going for that thermal cover, and I was just curious uh, how big you were buying and, and maybe what your planting regimen was on that. I need to put in a, a probably, I'd love to put in like 50 on on my 15, um, at least just right along kind of where the water flows through it and really create, those deer freaking love them cedars. I mean, it's yep. ridiculous. The, the goal there is to connect the main trail coming out of my sanctuary to the North Ridge. There's, they come out of basically one spot in the sanctuary, and then they'll sort of finger out a little bit, uh, kind of like a turkey foot. There's about three different ways that they'll transition across that open bottom and up into the north ridge. I'm going to plan almost like a diagonal travel pattern across that bottom to give them an edge and encourage them to use the middle spoke of, you know, kind of the middle portion of that that's the most hauntable travel pattern. The other two, I can't really hunt those trails once they get across the creek. So use that as sort of a, a you know, a man-made structure edge in there and to allow them to transition. And it works out well that once that's in place, I've now sort of isolated um, about an acre on the back side of that between that's encapsulated by creek and hardwoods. And that's, we're just going to let that, you know, go foul. I'm, I'm going to frost seed a little bit of switchgrass back in there um, just to see what happens as an experiment. I've not done any uh, frost seeding with switchgrass. I know, you know, everybody's got their opinion on whether that's a good idea or not. But, you know, for $20 worth of seed, I'm going to throw it over there and see what happens. And if it works, it works. If not, then I know it didn't work in that spot and we'll do it right somewhere else. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's plenty of ways to plant switch. Um we just covered it on our, on our last podcast a little bit. My frost seeding works great. Uh, I know plenty of guys who frost seed. Uh, if you can get a drill, drill it. Yep. That works great, too. Um, yep. You can even grow little plugs, you know, in your basement all winter and, and plant plugs. Nice. Uh, you can plant it with sorghum as a cover cover yep. crop. The sorghum works as a cover crop. There's multiple ways to plant it. Um, I guess my recommendation is get out and try with with what you have to, to work with and uh, – Make sure that you kill the competition. That's about all I got to say there. Um, I'm curious on where we're at today, 2020. We kind of heard about how your property's transformed, how you've transformed as a habitat manager. Um, what are your main goals this year? And, and like, what do you want to check off the, the list for 
habitat work for the next, you know, six, eight months. Yeah, so um, we've really been able to narrow in on a couple, I would say three stands out of all of the stands we've been hunting over the years have really risen to the top. And there's some final tweaks that need to take place there, the the corner pocket being one of them. Uh, we're going to add some cedars in between that food plot and the bigger ag field up on the ridge to provide some visual cover in there. Um, the other, one of the other three stands is up on the north ridge, which would be kind of adjacent to where we're hoping to do that that clear cut. And, uh, you know, that would, I think, transform both of those stands. They're already, you know, the best two I got. Uh, the big focus is going to be, uh, you know, really convincing my dad to get on board with, with getting in there heavy with the chainsaws and making uh, some transformative change in the cover. And I'll go back to that adjective because we need it. We got some, we got some open hardwoods that are really maturing, and uh, it's not desirable, you know. Right now it's tough to get in and out and hunt that place with snow on the ground the other day. If you're going in for an afternoon hunt um, and you're walking in the creek bottoms, you're, you stick out like a sore thumb. So I really yeah. need to thicken up a lot of the hardwoods up along the ridge so that you can actually get in and out, um, you know, this time of year. So the next 10 years is all going to be about cover. I've got my food plots in place. I've kind of got a regimen that I, that I like. We've got the farmer in there planting those five acres. He's going to continue to do that. Um, the next steps are, are getting in there and really making big changes in the timber. Very nice, very nice. And as far as your food plots, uh, I don't think we hit that yet. What are you planting in terms of variety and, and um, fall versus spring, or what you got going on there? Yeah, so uh, my food plot in the corner pocket is the clover plot. Um, that's I planted that with some stuff from Merit Seed about five years ago. It's probably due for, I'm debating. I got thistle in it really bad this year. I got lazy on my, my herbicide application, and no thistle got in there pretty bad. So um, I got to get that out of there or just turn it over and start from scratch. But I'm going to leave that as clover. Uh, that's been a really great, that, you know, back to the juries, that was, the tactic there was green to green. Um, farmer's been pretty consistent on beans back there in that corner. So, you know, that, that transition's worked really well for me. And then my creek bottom plots, I've always done annuals. This year I did the autumn quick plot from Frigid Forage. And uh, I'm here to tell you, they might, I might be a lifelong customer from them. The, the plots are incredible. The does really took to them in late October. So they became a really consistent place for me to, you know, we're getting that time of year where I need to go hunt does. Those two creek bottom food plots were my, my go-to spots. So um, I'm going to stay on a similar mix like that. And then my goal for 15 years is to have corn in that big uh, creek bottom field. So we're going to get the cedars in there. That still leaves me two-thirds of that field. And uh, we're, I'm, I'm talking right now about going in halves on a drill with my neighbor. He's got 21 acres just kind of across the hollow from me. And uh, we're going to get corn down in that big poop, or in that big creek bottom this year, and that'll be that'll be a big deal for us. That I mean, that sounds amazing. Cover and food there with the corn. Um, what uh, what's in that mix that you like so much from Fisher Forage? Um, it had the brassicas grew really well, but it's got a little bit of winter wheat and triticale in there, and um, it just it grew well and. The deer just seem to take to it differently. I've, I've grown some, some great 
Nebraska turnip plots over the year. That's soil. I'm very fortunate to have good soil down there, so there's not a lot of work that needs to go into that. Um, I grew some groundhog radishes from Merritt Seed one year that were, I mean, cover of a magazine quality food plot, but the deer never touched it. They just, for whatever reason, wouldn't eat the, wouldn't eat the tops, wouldn't eat the, the bulbs. Uh, this seems to be a little different. The Braskas this year in that mix are getting hit finally, and they worked around and got a lot of those cereal grains that were mixed in there, and I think that's what they were hitting pretty heavy in October. Jesse, you mentioned having pretty good soil. You're a little bit further south than most of the Ohio properties that I've worked. What kind of soil are you dealing with down there, and uh, what kind of amendments have you made over the years? we got a good sort of loamy – um, I would it, I hate to say classic creek bottom soil because it changes everywhere you go, but it's we don't have a lot of clay here on my 11 acres. I'm all red clay, and I can't get a food plot established here without some serious changes. And so it just it is what it is here. But we have next to no clay on the farm, even up on the ridges. You know, it's a it's a good fertile soil. Um, it's got you know, good color to it, good feel to it, breaks down well. I've just stayed on top of it with um, with tests over the years. Um, lime application as recommended when needed, same thing with fertilizer. Um, I'm not, um, you know, I defer to Al, Al when it comes to the science behind all that stuff. He's the soil guru for us on the forum. But oh, yeah. I, I kind of, uh, I still take the poor man's approach a little bit. I, I'm not ashamed to say that. Uh, a lot of times, I've planted a lot of food plots without soil tests over the years. You just get behind, and it is what it is. And I've not suffered the consequences of that because I got that good, loamy, rich soil down there. Where it's got, you know, it's had good vegetation breakdown over the years. And uh, at one time, having cattle roaming over most of the place certainly has contributed to the quality of that soil. Yeah. So, I think we hit. A lot of stuff on on the eighty, but you said your eleven is where you kill out the big bucks. Yeah, I gotta ask why. I I own the intersection of four hollows. <laughs> um, that that in and of itself is what does it. The neighbors to the northwest, own, um, they got sixty two acres total. Forty two of it's on my side of the road, and. 30 of it is just thick, nasty creek bottom and overgrown field. And so they have always held bucks, and I can count on sitting in that intersection of those, you know, creeks, and I'll see bucks. It's just, it's been that way my whole life, <laughs> and it'll continue to be that way. It's changed a lot here. Um, a lot of the farms around us have gotten broken up. It's become somewhat of a, a suburban hunting experience because of the way everything was cut up and everybody's got a little sliver of the woods and the pressure has changed, but the deer still use it in the historical way they've done. And that cover around here has allowed deer to get to a different age. Um, I've killed four bucks here that are on the wall. Three of those were six years old. Wow. And so they just, it's kind of a unique, they don't get, We've not killed a lot of big scoring deer. I say that, but my dad killed a 170-inch 10-point here in 2004, same year I killed a, a you know, a mid-130s 9-point that was, was six years old, first year I ever got on, on trail camera, and first year I'd ever actually seen a jawbone in to have the, um, the aging done. 
And so it's just kind of a unique situation where we got really good cover around us. Um, a lot of, even though there's more pressure today, this has always been a really uh, disciplined neighborhood in terms of allowing bucks to get to a certain age class. And um, it's just worked out over the years. Yeah, I think that's uh, a huge contributing factor is the neighborhood and your neighbors. Um, pressure is huge, probably number one, uh, maybe number two, and your neighbors might be number one. I mean, we, we noticed that here. I wasn't even going to buy my property, and I know the listeners have probably heard this ten times, but I wasn't even going to buy a property that was not in a deer cooperative. Right. Um, and I didn't. I, I held out until I found one that was in one. Um, that helps a lot. I know, you know, like you said, if your neighbors are all not too trigger happy, that goes a long way for every two and three year old that one and a half year old here in Michigan that that walks by. Right. Yeah, no, it's that's that's been helpful here, and, and we're talking about the co-op on the on the eighty. I think we've my neighbor that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I've known him for a long time. He's on board. We're actually trying to lease the the two twenty that is the old dairy farm I mentioned. That would give us you know some better control. Yeah. Uh, so having the neighborhood on board. For a long time, that's why I was able to be successful here on the 11 acres, and I'm hoping to do the same thing on the 80. Right, right. Very nice. Well, um, that's all I had for you, Jesse. I'd like to hear and wrap this up. Um, I have, Actually, no, I lied. I have one more question. I'd like to hear about, you know, the Ohio outdoors and, and let you mention that before we wrap. But I want to know what your favorite tree is, whether it's for habitat, for hunting, um for staring at while you're in the woods, whatever. What is your favorite tree and why? So uh, it's kind of a split. I, I would The easy one for me is the cedar. I love a good cedar tree. But at the end of the day, I like a big, gnarly white oak, what folks would call a wolf oak. Um, hmm. I actually was getting – before I found this job where I'm at now, I had started the branding the logic consulting business that I was calling um, Wolf Oak Services because those wolf oaks were a lot of times you'll see them on fence rows and you know they'll be the loners out in the fields or um, you know kind of up on a knob somewhere they were considered to be non-desirable from a market you know from a timber standpoint because they had all those low branches and it made them naughty and they were hard to cut down they didn't have those long clean trunks and you know we have a lot of those trees around here Um, there's a couple of great ones on the 80 there's one fantastic one here on my property that's I mean, it's got to be well over 200 years old. It's just big and gnarly. But, man, when it's throwing white oaks, every deer in the 640 around here is coming there to eat acorns off that tree. And so, you know, for the for the timber guy, he's going to say, well, I don't want that tree because it's, it's knotted and gnarly. But, man, those are some of the best trees for the local wildlife that you can find. And they're just uh, – I've always been fascinated by them. No, that's awesome. I've never heard that term before, wolf oak. That's that's sweet. I know exactly what kind of tree you're talking about. Um, what type of uh, consulting services would you have been doing? So I'm a project manager by trade. Um, a lot of experience in uh, new market access and just executing on projects. And, you know, locally here we have a lot of small businesses that I think need help they need somebody to come in and help them execute on a project so at the end of the day it was basically just contract project management okay very cool 
So you just would grab that name from that tree. I got you. Yep. Well, and, and the thought was, so I spent the first 10 years of my career in the oil field and got laid off in the downturn. And so there was kind of this synergy between wolf oaks are these sort of forgotten about and discarded trees when, in fact, they really have value to derive for the landscape. And I kind of thought the same thing about me and my career was, you know, I, I, I wasn't – I didn't cut the mustard there, but I still got some value to deliver to my community, and, and that was kind of uh, the homage to the wolf oak there. Very cool. I love that. Very cool, man. No, that's that's great. I um, I'm glad I asked that question. I always love that question. Brian, anything else from you before we let Jesse wrap this up? No, just appreciate him taking the time to come on. It's always great to talk to these Ohio boys. I got a lot of good info and uh, enjoy hearing their stories. Yes, sir. Jesse, why don't you take us through uh, how we can find you? your website, etc., and anything you have coming up, uh, you know, in the near future that might be advantageous for our listeners. Yeah, so uh, theohiooutdoors.com is the forum. Feel free to, to jump on and join in, ask questions. Uh, you can find us at The Ohio Outdoors on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and then I would say if, you know, you like what you see from the forum and you actually want to put some faces to the names, the uh, last weekend in April, we're going to be camping at Paint Creek. That's our annual family get-together. So we're going to be able to chase turkeys and hunt up morel mushrooms and do some crappie fishing. So anybody that's listening right now that knows where Paint Creek State Park is, more than welcome to swing by. We won't be hard to miss. You'll see all the all the branded gear running around. Uh, we'll be easy to pick out. Great, man. Well, I'd love to make it down to one of those get-togethers, so uh, I will keep tabs on that. I did join the website. Um, got off of uh, your old competitor there and onto bigger and better things. <laughs> yeah. So I love the habitat stuff. I love all you Ohio boys. So thank you very much for, for coming on. And, um, you know, good luck with your habitat work this season. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Jesse. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, Sound Barrier Hunting, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.
one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight Western. A mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.